listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you for joining us at Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and welcome to Writers Live. Tonight, we're very thrilled to have Leslie Jamison and Dr. Adam Kaplan here in conversation. Uh, Leslie will read for a little bit, then they'll be in conversation, and then we'll open it up to a Q&A with the audience. And then there will still be time to mingle and buy um, copies of the book from the local independent, the Ivy Bookshop. Leslie Jamison is a New York Times bestselling author, a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, and her work has appeared in publications including The Atlantic, Harper's, The New York Times Book Review, and The Oxford American. She directs the graduate program of nonfiction at Columbia University. I was so moved by the grace and human detail of Jameson's prose when I first read the collection The Empathy Exams. Each essay exhibited incredible empathy for folks in pain, folks that have been discounted physically or culturally. The recovering intoxication and its aftermath executes a similar flex. It's a study of the narratives of addiction through fiction and celebrity to the people she has met along her recovery journey. She digs deep and asks what recovery means to folks and offers a fascinating look at the larger history of the recovery movement and at the complicated bearing that race and class have on our understanding of who is criminal and who is ill. So I'm so glad she's here tonight with Dr. Kaplan of the Departments of Psychiatry and Neurology at Johns Hopkins talking about the book and recovery. So please give a warm welcome to Leslie Jamison and Dr. Kaplan. Thank you so much. It's great, great to be here. And thank you, Adam, for being game for chatting with me. And thank you all for coming out. I'm just going to read a few short passages from the book that I think will uh, set up some of its questions and also set up Adam's role in this process a little bit as well. Every meeting was a chorus. You got to know the regulars. A man named Mitch remembered waking up one morning after a bender in a car that wasn't his in the middle of a field to see a cow sticking her nose through the open window. A woman named Gloria described taking long naps when her daughter was young, drinking alone in her bedroom and answering, groggy and irritated, whenever her daughter knocked on the door. A man named Carl remembered drinking thermos after thermos of instant coffee, compulsively into jittery oblivion as a boy in elementary school. A man named Keith, in his polyester tracksuit, was usually quiet, but one day he said simply, when I drink, hope dies in me. A man named Felix, An aging heroin addict in a red beanie said he loved being hungry. It was his body telling him it wanted to live. 
A woman named Dana had half her hair shaved with purple streaks in what was left. She rarely smiled those first few months after she got off heroin. The way she glared at me sometimes, I was sure she found me tiresome and long-winded. But one day, she laughed so hard at something I shared about tuning the car radio to NPR before turning off the ignition so that when my boyfriend started the car, he would think I'd been listening to NPR because it seemed like I should listen to NPR rather than the ridiculous pop music I played instead. It was a trivial thing, but also not. It was about lying to give the world what you wanted it to see. That's me, Dana said. That's totally me. When I started giving her rides to meetings, we never played NPR. After a few months clean, she really bloomed. You could see it in her eyes and body, how tightly she hugged other women. One morning, I picked her up during a huge snowstorm with the roads nearly empty. My car was shit in the snow. I blasted the heat and clenched the wheel. We fishtailed all the way but made the meeting. We had a time now, the two of us. We had a story. That day, we drove through the snow. That day, we weren't sure we'd make it, but then we did. What does the concept of recovery mean? It can mean healing, repair, relocation, reclamation, or recuperation. French philosopher Catherine Malibu proposes three different visions of recovery, attaching each one to an animal, the phoenix, the spider, and the salamander. The phoenix represents a vision of recovery in which the wound is utterly erased, quote, an annulment of the defect, the mark, the lesion, just as the phoenix rises unscathed from the ashes, perfectly unblemished, precisely as it was before. It's like skin healing without a scar, and it's something close to the psychic opposite of AA, in which wounds are not forgotten, but fundamental. AA lives somewhere between Malibu's other creatures, the spider offers a model of recovery that involves something like an endless accumulation of scars spun into a web, like a text, quote, covered with marks, nicks, scratches, that refuses the possibility of taking on a new skin without blemishes. While the salamander, Malibu's third recovery mascot, grows a new limb that is neither scarred nor identical to the one it had before. This new limb is not the spider's endless web of scars, but it's not a phoenix-style resurrection either, recovery bringing back an unchanged version of the former self, because the salamander's new limb has a different size, shape, and weight. There is no scar but there is a difference, Malibu writes. The difference is neither a form of higher life nor a monstrous gap. AA's vision of regeneration proposes a sober identity that is neither a replica of the prior self with the drinking excised like a tumor, 
nor a version of this self covered with calluses and scars, but a new organ entirely. The transformation is neither holy nor grievous. It's just a strategy of survival. When I first heard the phrase, witness authority, it was like hearing someone say, dihydrogen monoxide, and then thinking, of course, water. Dr. Meg Chisholm, a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins, was telling me she recommends AA to patients mainly for its social infrastructure and for this witness authority, meaning the way AA members offer, by sharing their experiences, a lived authority distinct from her own. So that's what you call it, I thought. I'd already been living on it for years. A man named Bug getting me right that first night in a meeting, or Dana saying, that's me, as if her whole life had been spent listening to the wrong radio station. Dr. Kaplan told me that his patients often say to him, you'd be doing heroin too, doctor. You don't know what it means to walk a mile in my shoes. He works with addicts whose lives often differ sharply from his own, and part of what these patients find in recovery is recognition. Both Dr. Kaplan and Dr. Chisholm told me that 12-step recovery can be a delivery mechanism for effective behavioral treatments like positive reinforcement and peer support, but it has no monopoly on them. It teaches coping strategies, facilitates community, and rewards abstinence with poker chips and birthday cake, with a room full of people clapping for your 90th day, your first year, your 30th. Dr. Kaplan told me, Meetings are particularly useful for people who need to hear themselves confessing. When I heard the sinuous, glimmering energy of recovery offered back to me in these clinical phrases, contingency management and community reinforcement, I got a sense of deja vu. It wasn't unlike hearing about the dopamine transport blockage responsible for the billowing sale of my coke high. Nothing was falsified or cheapened, only translated and specified, charted like a ship's voyage on a different type of map. One evening in the dead of winter, I went to a sober ladies' night in a big house in the middle of an Iowa subdivision. The house belonged to a woman named Nell, and it was immaculate with a brown leather living room set and a white shag rug. It was eerie, the clean and polish of everything, the hanging metal saucepans gleaming in their dangling rows. It seemed lonely. From her shares in meetings, I knew that Nell's husband was struggling with her relapses. We were having game night. Someone had brought balderdash, Someone had brought apples to apples, where one player dealt a card with an adjective, expensive, useful, rich, and everyone else had to play a noun from the cards in her hand. Switzerland, igloo, bank robber. A woman named Lori had made banana muffins still steaming in their basket wrapped in cloth. 
a woman named Ginger brought turkey pot pie, and Val brought something called chicken surprise, made of five different kinds of beige, cream of this, cream of that, milk and grated cheese and mayonnaise. I could remember sweating straight rum onto my sheets, kissing a man at dawn with coke crackling through my veins, getting woozy on a lawn full of fireflies. That was living. I'd been so sure of it. This night was several kinds of casserole. I brought cookies from the bakery wherever I went. I brought cookies from the bakery. I used to work at a bakery in a pink box speckled with tiny archipelagos of grease. Nell took them from me, excited, and I felt like a child, so pleased by her pleasure, by the primal buzz of food passing from my hands to hers. It was nice to be useful, even in the smallest way. Nell's husband was a lawyer who worked long hours and had always wanted a kid, though Nell's drinking was making it hard for them to imagine having one. As Nell showed me around, she pointed out her old hiding spots for bottles. A paper bag under the kitchen sink, behind the cleaning supplies. An old camping bag in the garage where she rolled them in blankets. I remembered listening for my boyfriend's key in the lock, drinking the last of the gin, brushing my teeth so hard my gums bled. That night, we played charades. We played it hard. We played apples to apples. We drew trustworthy, and someone put down Canadians. Then someone won with whiskey, a wild card that had been added, handwritten. We drew desperate, and I wanted to put down board games. We poured our Diet Coke from liter bottles. Middle-aged women in pastel cardigan sweaters talked about shooting heroin into parts of the body I didn't know it could be shot into. We talked about how to get through a day without the old horizons of relief, and there was relief in that. In hearing another human being say how fucking hard it was for her as well, just the simple act of living in the world without anything to blunt its edges. The longer I spent in Nell's house, the more amazing she seemed to me, just getting up each day in a home full of the ghosts of her old hidden bottles, facing up to the husband she disappointed, trying to own the pieces of her life again, trying to do, as I was hearing people say in meetings, the next right thing. Driving home, I imagined me and all these women getting drunk together in a bar somewhere, totally sloppy, doing the one thing that connected all of us but that we'd never do together. I wanted to meet the people these women had been when they were drunk. The din and revelry of that impossible night was like noise from another room, something muffled behind a door. I recognized whatever remained in Nell that made her want to point out exactly where the bottles had been. Under there, up there, tucked in there. I imagined her back in her empty house in its dark subdivision, sweeping up pastry crumbs, wiping down surfaces that were already clean, fighting the swallowing quiet. One part of me was sorry that she couldn't just grab a vodka bottle from the camping backpack and sink into that sweet, clean stupor. 
but another part of me believed in this aftermath, its daily accumulations. Don't leave before the miracle happens, another woman told me, and I thought, sure, okay, but also wanted to know when. I wanted to know the exact date of the miracle, day, month, and year, for me and for now, so I could tell her, just hold out till then. So thank you so much for uh, allowing me to come here. I, I should tell everybody that um, uh, we're going to be, oh, this is actually broadcast here, gotcha, and Dave will make sure we're, we're doing our thing. So um, what I should tell you is that when, when you had come and talked to me among other experts, then to vet, to make sure that the publisher called me to make sure that I had said the things that, um, that he had uh, written down as I having said, and I heard the things he said, and I thought, boy, I wish I said those things. I mean, you um, you take ideas that I'm sure some of them were mine to begin with, but you put them into a way that is so accessible. There, there's kind of three things I just wanted to touch base on at some point. We may not get through all three, but one is the deeply personal nature of this book. And, you know, to hear you read this and think about how if people get the Audible book, they will hear your voice. So one of the things is the personal nature, the other is creativity and alcohol, and then the third is sort of addiction and the general condition. But let me start with you and ask, you know, people probably don't even know that alcoholism is probably the worst addiction we have out there in terms of 90,000 people die every year from it. Um, that it's the third leading cause of preventable death Far more people are dying from that, from overdosing on opiates and this kind of stuff. But we hear about those other things. So my question to you is, when was the seed planted mm -hmm. towards your recovery? Mm -hmm. And then when did you finally kind of, what motivated you to actually mm -hmm. move beyond that, you know, potential well, lethal mm -hmm. condition and get to where you are now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much in, in even what you just said, and just as, as background even to this talk, and part of why it's so great to be here with you is, um, partway through, is, I mean, as you can hear from the portion I read, I, I talked to Adam quite a bit when I was putting this book together, and part of the reason for that was that I thought of this book, or had imagined this book, as hopefully exploring these questions about addiction and recovery, not just sort of um, what does addiction feel like, where does addiction come from, what does recovery consist of, and what are its possibilities, but also, as you're alluding to, like what are uh, these possible relationships between not only creativity and addiction, which I think we hear a lot about, the mythology of like the tortured addict genius or the tortured drunk genius, but actually what I feel like I had never heard very much about, which is what are the possible connections between recovery and creativity. So I wanted to sort of get at those questions through my own life, as you were saying, um, through the lives of other artists and writers, and then through the, a, a sort of larger cultural history of how addiction has been imagined and articulated in America. But I realized that you know, maybe I should also get the voice of somebody who kind of knew what they were talking about in a political sense, because I don't. And that part of what was so fascinating about speaking to you and speaking to Meg was that, as I sort of alluded to in the passage I read, but, but felt on a very deep level, is that you were giving me often language or a, a kind of clinical framework for things that I had experienced, but... Um, 
didn't didn't know how to place in that in that kind of landscape or that kind of grid. And so, you know, things like uh, contingency management as a phrase for what might go on in fellowship-based recovery, or I remember you used a phrase that I thought was um, so evocative about addiction itself and the kind of endless and futile search for like the first high or the first buzz, like just trying to find your way back to the first time through the turnstile. And I don't know if that's just your language, but it's really good language for me. That idea of like wanting to find a way back to what it felt like to cross that threshold the first time. Um, so I, I was thinking a lot as I put this book together about how we find and create different languages from different fields for the same concepts or the same experiences. And that's part of why it was so meaningful to have you in here and also then to have you in here in this room so we can talk about it in person. Um, but as for the, the kind of seeds of, of my own uh, recovery or, or my sobriety, um, I think it's really important to, at least in my own personal experience, to get rid of the idea of like the turning point or something as what recovery looks like. Because for me, it felt much more like uh, like a series of seeds got planted over time and I, it wasn't that I was necessarily had some great stunning blinding moment of insight and then everything turned around and more like you know uh, some of them that I can mention would be sitting on the floor of a bookstore and reading Carolyn Knapp's book Drinking a Love Story I don't know how many people here have read it probably some of you uh, it's an incredible yeah. memoir about alcoholism and recovery I, I, I was still drinking, and I picked it up um, because I think I was starting to feel like there was something really wrong with my drinking and something that felt really toxic about how much I needed it and how much my life revolved around it. And so I picked this book up. It immediately spoke to me. I didn't, you know, I tell this story sometimes, and now as a writer, I think, God, I should have bought the book. But <laughs> instead, I didn't buy the book. I just sat down on the floor of the bookstore and read it cover to cover. But I still remember the kind of nubbly feel of the carpet and how, how moving and how resonant her journey felt. And it wasn't like I said, I see myself in that book, that means I need to stop drinking and stop drinking. But it stayed in me, it stayed in me for years and once I was finally ready to stop, and as I write here, I stopped multiple times and, and was in recovery uh, once and went back out and went, went back into the sobriety that I'm still inside of. Uh, so it's it's a kind of a jagged process, but I think her words were one of those seeds that got planted in me. I think um, certainly a, a, another kind of turning point for me was uh, drinking when I knew that I was pregnant, um, and I ended up terminating that pregnancy, but I think that experience was really made me feel like something has has happened in me where I need this thing so deeply that I can't stop, even when I really feel like I should. Um, I went on uh, heart medication, as my on-retainer cardiologist knows here, um, and the, the kind of complications of drinking while on medication were, were kind of an objective uh, warning flag to me, but I really think that ultimately recovery came from a place of like not knowing what sober life would look like, but feeling so deeply... Um, desperate and despairing about what life felt like in this kind of endless cycle of drinking to get drunk every single day. And that feeling of not knowing what was on the other side or not knowing what the other possibility might look like, but feeling like this way of living can't continue um, was, was really where I hit that, 
that kind of that end point of desperation. Yeah, that's um, that's very descriptive, and I think many people will recognize <coughs> that it just takes you know um, a number of different yeah. pennies to drop uh, mm-hmm. to, for it all to sort of come together. You know, one of the things that um, what you're talking about with and the way you graphically describe picturing what the child would look like and, and all of this and, and the graphic sort of torture you did to yourself, but still kept drinking, it just reminds me, you know, uh, addict comes from the Latin word for slave. Mm-hmm. And um, just the way the addiction tends to change the way people think and that they, when you look back now, do you, you know, what do you think about the fact that you continued to drink and how do you mm-hmm. rationalize that, you know, thinking, you know, as a mother of a child? Now, yeah, so. yeah. I mean, I think uh, the, the etymology of the word makes a lot of emotional sense to me because I think even though my addiction didn't take me to the places that many people's addictions take them to in terms of a kind of, um, you know, I didn't lose my home, uh, I didn't lose my job, I didn't lose my life, you know, there were a lot of things I didn't lose that, that um, many people do have to reckon with losing, um, but I do think that that psychological experience of feeling um, completely in the thrall of this experience and like nothing quite mattered to me as much as just being able to get that uh, you know elusive feeling of the first buzz that I was probably not going to get again that turns dialogic uh, but just wanting to just create that feeling every night I remember the first time I felt um, a buzz from alcohol probably not the first time I drank but the first time I drank enough to just to feel it that glow I really distinctly felt like I don't know why everybody isn't talking about this all the time and doing this all the time. Like, it just didn't make any sense to me that there were people kind of who didn't get drunk every day. It just felt so good. Um, So I think that that sense of just being, kind of feeling like um, the substance is this magnetic north that all of your body and spirit is pointed towards, like, that really resonates with that original that original kind of um, slave meaning of the word. And I mean, I wonder, like, this is a bit related also to your first question, like, I wonder in your work as a clinician, when you work with people, what are the kinds of self-awareness that you feel like help people recover in a long-term way versus the kinds of self-awareness that don't necessarily make a difference? Because I felt like, just to clarify that question, like, I felt like I had a lot of self-awareness but that self-awareness didn't translate for a long time into being able to actually change the way I behaved. Like, I could tell myself I understood why I drank, or I knew myself, um, but it didn't. It just didn't help me stop. And so I wonder whether, wh- whether you feel like self-awareness is an answer for the clients of yours who you do see get sober, or whether it's something else often that becomes the, I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, I mean, I can tell you, we, we actually just got some data back looking at the difference between uh, personal stigma, the, pe- yeah. the way people have various conditions, whether it's an STD or alcoholism or what have you, uh, personal stigma that, that they bring upon themselves versus societal stigma, the way they view society viewing them, and the difference between the two. What was interesting is the two conditions that had the biggest discrepancy where people's personal stigma was the lowest, but their mm-hmm. perception of societal stigma was the highest were 
eating disorders and addictions. Mm -hmm. Because that sense of what you're describing, it's so great. I mean, wouldn't you know, why aren't other people out there, you know, Dr. Kaplan, why aren't you you know, you do heroin too? And you know, to tell you the truth, if there was no trouble hearing how great it was, if there were no, right. no consequences, sure, I yeah. you know, it sounds amazing. But um but so a lot of it is kind of uh, we talk about it more like a conversion, mm -hmm. um, sort of uh, almost a, in the way a religious conversion sort of changes the way you look at the world. And a lot of it is just, um, you know, trying to help the person understand the consequences, like losing the child, like those mm -hmm. kinds of things, mm -hmm. and trying to um, set up, you know, these are the things you've lost and these are the things mm -hmm. that are happening. But I will tell you, in my experience, what really has to happen for me, what's most effective is if you have someone that has had some clean time and you say, do you remember before you started drinking or yeah. what have you, or during that clean time, how was it? And they say, mm -hmm. oh my God, it was great. I had a girlfriend, mm -hmm. I was you know, working. Mm -hmm. And people will work for the, um, uh, for the reward mm -hmm. much more than the work for the punishment. So mm -hmm. if someone you know, were to try to punish you, you've done so much punishing to yourself um, you know, with the, you know, continued use, that it's very hard using a punishment to convince right. anybody. Right. So it's right. usually trying to reward them based on showing them those kinds of things. But it isn't easy yeah. at all. And it takes, it takes people like you and AA and that sort of witness authority to sort of put it out there. Like you, what was very informative to you was reading this, mm -hmm. you know, a book by mm -hmm. someone who you could connect mm -hmm. with. That's mm -hmm. invaluable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and it also makes sense. Um, I mean, just thinking about what you were talking about, that, that people are, when you when you summon somebody back to what their life looked like when they were clean or the things they missed from when they were clean or the things that felt possible when they were clean, like that, that's not like holding up some hypothetical abstract ideal that has nothing to do with them. It's about saying, like, this is already in you and this is already part of you and, like, can you get back there? And contrasting that with, like, Punishment as something that doesn't work is is obviously a, a huge part, I think. I mean, when I hear that, I think, yes, that's part of why our American punitive, legalistic, war on drugs approach just, like, doesn't doesn't help. And I don't know if you've read that book. It's a great book by called Unbroken Brain by Maya Salovich. About how it's more behavior than anything. Is mm -hmm. that the one? Yeah, yeah. She, well, she thinks about... I would be curious to know your thoughts on this, but she thinks about addiction as a kind of... Um, in the context of a learning disorder, but where it's sort of like, it describes a behavior that even when faced with extreme negative consequences, doesn't, uh, doesn't stop. Um, and so that's part of her read on why you, you put somebody in prison and it doesn't, it, the very definition of addiction is that it's not gonna respond to that kind of punishment. That's like how the thing works. Um, yeah, I mean, we could get into a yeah. very political discussion yeah. right here, you know. Um, but um, but there's no question, the war on drugs is really the war on drug users. And and in uh, there was a period there actually during the Reagan administration where people were much more likely to people were putting more effort into treatment and starting to roll out treatment programs, and the rate of crime went down and the rate of um, you know uh, abstinence went up. So there's no question that it's absurd, the idea of, you know, 
of punishing people as a way, you know, just, again, the punishments. When I see medical students in the emergency room telling patients, you know, if you keep using drugs, something bad's going to happen to someone who's eating trash out of a trash can, has HIV, and whose family won't talk to them. They're looking at them like, are you serious, son? Because something bad has already happened to me. We're far beyond that. But um, so it's it's kind of absurd. I there are so many things that go into it, and and there's sort of the social aspect of what pulls people along. You had that, I think, to some extent in the uh, I was writers mm-hmm. group with you know the fact that all these great writers from Carver uh, and the like had been these great alcoholics, and you guys all went out and drunk uh, drinking and stuff. So you had the concern about not only. Um, you know, losing this thing that was incredibly, you know, addicting that you found really enjoyable, but also the concern about losing the creative spark and that individual quality of, of the brilliant way you write. So that's one of the aspects. That must have been tough to make that leap. Well, I think, yeah, so to just give a little bit of background on what um, Adam was referring to, I, I write in the book about moving to Iowa City, where I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which was um, the oldest graduate writing program in the country, but it's like really literally kind of steeped in booze. So The best. Not only the oldest, but the best, <laughs> I guess. Um, but it's like, you know, it's a small town, and it's filled with bars, and a bunch of those bars are literally the same places where writers that I had admired for so much of my writing life had had gotten drunk and I had this idea that was very much circulating in the in the world I was in that that there was this deep connection between um, their drinking or their drug using and the, cre- the their creativity like the beauty of the work they made and I think it was connected to kind of deeper notions about the relationship between pain and beauty that you sort of went to a dark place and brought back from that dark place certain kinds of truth or certain kinds of beauty. And on the one hand, that is undeniably true about how a lot of art gets made and how creativity works, that people take extreme forms of um, psychic suffering and even physical suffering and can make incredible art from it. Um, But I think that I had sort of absorbed somewhere along the way that, that um, a certain kind of suffering had a monopoly on what uh, on what creativity was or on where beauty could come from. And so I did have these notions of sort of Carver being drunk in these bars where I was getting drunk and that he was sort of like wringing out like his suffering like a dark cloth and then collecting like this like gold and beauty that, that, that emerged from it. Um, and that part of what was interesting to me as I started getting sober and as I was putting this book together is just realizing that some of the writers that I had worshipped as kind of drunk geniuses actually did get sober or tried to get sober and 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 made some of their most powerful work from periods of sobriety and recovery as well. And even though that wasn't the story that often got told about them, I started to get really interested in how actually the processes of um, especially fellowship-based recovery or community-based recovery, like sitting in a room with people and hearing their stories or thinking about your own life in terms of um, who you felt accountable to and why. Or, you know, there's a moment in what I read where I said, you know, how do you live in the world without something to blunt its edges? And it can be incredibly uncomfortable to take away the thing that blunts all the sharp edges But it also means you're waking up to experience in a different way. You're waking up to feeling in a different way. You're sort of moving through the day with all your nerve endings open. And if you think about what it means to write, 
it's also quite natural that, that a certain kind of sharpened truth would come from living in the world without anything to blunt its edges. So Iowa City was not only where I learned to kind of drink in that way, but it was also where I ended up getting sober. And so in that sense, there was a, like I lived there twice. And so in that sense, there was a, a sort of poetic structure to like um, falling in love with the drinking in a certain way and then kind of um, uh, coming to a sense of the possibilities of recovery. But, but in the beginning, it was, uh, I went a little crazy because you know, I, I, I was scared, as you said, about whether sobriety was going to kind of turn, turn my life into a kind of flat line. And early sobriety is a little bit maddening. You feel kind of numb and blank, and it's hard to know what you're living for. It's hard to know what's pleasurable, or it was hard for me to feel like there was much pleasure in anything. Um, and so I just remember sitting in coffee shops, like, you know, all night long thinking, okay, I'm not drinking, so I should be, you know, writing the next great novel in this coffee shop, but instead it was just fluorescent and the words weren't coming. It was just me sitting at the computer, like watching people through the window going into bars. So it's not like it was some immediate sense of richness or possibility. So uh, there's so much there that could potentially be unpacked, but I'm curious, um, several things, but I'll just go with the, the, the one that is most curious to me is, do you think it's not that alcohol when people are intoxicated changes the way people think, uh, changes the way people think? It's more just that going through being addicted to alcohol brings with it suffering? Is that, what do you, I mean, do you think yeah. that that's, it's the suffering that really kind of comes along? Well, I think, I mean, I think there are a few different ways of thinking about it and, and a few different ways in which both I think there might be connections and then a, a few different ways the kind of mythology of like the drug genius gets spun. And I think sometimes the, the sense of the connection between addiction and creativity or drinking and creativity or maybe more broadly suffering and creativity uh, can kind of hold that, yes, in going through deeply painful experiences, you come into contact with a certain set of truths that you couldn't come into contact with otherwise. And I think there was also, you know, when I was reading this, I think it was a 1969 Life magazine profile of John Berryman, like one of our great drunk poets, it, it laid out this idea that basically John Berryman had this extremely attuned psychic sensitivity to... To, to sort of painful metaphysical truths about you know about mortality and about the, the just kind of intrinsic pain of being alive, and that he drank to sort of survive his own proximity to those truths, so that he had a kind of intense psychic attunement, and he needed to get drunk in order to like survive that attunement. And so, in a sense, it wasn't like he was a genius because he was getting drunk, but right. that his genius and his urge to drink came from the same dark place in his sure. soul. Sure, and we know that there's a big comorbidity about mood mm -hmm. disorders and alcohol, mm -hmm. particularly you know, older women who get drunk for the first time, never had a history. Mm -hmm. Almost always it's a late onset depression or a mood mm -hmm. disorder that sort of drives it. So the alcohol is yeah. treating the suffering mm -hmm. of the, you know, not mm -hmm. the other way around. So I think that's a really good mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. And then I think in, in terms, terms of what, you know, uh, if you if you sort of dig a little bit deeper into that mythos of like, you know, the drunk genius who, who spins beauty from his pain and, and needs to drink to survive that pain. I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's more complicated. It's not that John Berryman did drink and he did write great poetry and the, the, his drinking 
shaped and contoured that poetry in, in so many ways. So it's not that there was no relationship there, but part of what was poignant to me was his real struggle to find a way of being creative that wasn't so deeply entangled in that cycle of drinking and getting drunk. And, and he wrote in one of his diaries, I spent some time um, in a bunch of different archives for this book, but I spent some time in Berryman's archives in Minneapolis, and I saw in one of his journals where he had written, like, you know, I must, uh, I must get rid of the delusion that my creativity depends upon my drinking. Like, and for him, getting rid of that delusion was like a was a necessary part of surviving. Like, he needed to get rid of that idea in order to actually be able to stop. And um, and he tried to write a novel called Recovery about the process of recovering. Um, and he didn't finish the novel. And he didn't finish his recovery. You can never finish recovery. But um, he he ended up relapsing and. So there was something really poignant to me about watching him try to make art from this space of sobriety and not quite being able to make that art, but wanting desperately to make it, not quite being able to stay sober, but wanting desperately to stay sober. Um, and you know, it, it felt like such an important thing in the book to acknowledge the ways that there's no, the story of recovery goes a thousand different ways and to kind of tell only one story about it always feels false. Yeah. And, and that's very helpful to me, by the way. I, I just find that fascinating, the idea that the mythology, that it's the alcohol that makes people creative, but the creative people tend to go to alcohol is another big part, and that the suffering that the alcohol brings uh, certainly can do it. Um, and uh, I think that's very powerful. Uh, I can certainly tell you, for anybody who's ever been the designated driver, when you're around a group of people and they're drunk, you don't get the sense that there's a high level of creativity going on in the group. So, so I, it certainly fits with um, some of that. But so the the other thing, and I don't there's know. How, one I was going to say. Yeah, please. Oh, um, no, just like directly on the thing about designated driving. I remember early on in sobriety, somebody said, oh, "I guess no. What was it? It was that I. I think I was afraid that I was going to get." boring in some way when I got sober, but, but actually the, the more pressing problem when I first got sober was that other people seemed more boring. <laughs> you know, so I think yes. that supports what, what yes. you're saying, but, and which is not actually how I feel about people in some kind of broad way, but it was like it wasn't quite, the problem wasn't quite what I had thought it would be. So. Gotcha. Um, um, so I... I absolutely want to make sure we have time for questions, but I, I definitely wanted to ask you sort of the third thing, which is the universal concept that comes from this. So, you know, there's something that's so, uh, you know, forgive me in using a pejorative word, but so selfish about, you know, the just making yourself feel good with the addiction. And it's, it's by definition something that you have to hide, so it's something you do alone uh, and all of this. And to go from that to the way you just opened yourself up to, you know, and I think you used the word choir, to the choir of all of these people and process all of this. And there, there are people who have certainly said this about you, and I think it's, it's true that you are the great American empath in terms of your writing, that you are able to channel these people from your empathy exams to these you know, groups and the people that you talk about. But can you talk about that transition from telling your own personal and private story to then kind of mm -hmm. then making that solo into a choir and what mm -hmm. how that was related to you know your recovery or, or how that came to pass mm -hmm. yeah well, I mean it's a great question because it's really attuned to 
what I was thinking about when I was envisioning this book and what I wanted the book to be doing, which was always from the beginning, my conception of this book was that it would be something like a chorus of stories. And in that sense, I wanted the book to work like a recovery meeting in some way, that it wouldn't just be one person speaking, it would be a sort of, you know, as I read in that passage, like a, a chorus of people speaking. And that that chorus would include voices, uh, would include my own voice and my own story, but it would also include these voices that I had researched in archives, these voices um, behind the literature that I had grown up loving, voices of people that I interviewed, um, and Part of that was that I, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm interested in form and part of what excites me is ideas about structure and form. And so I wanted to say, is there some way that the very form of this book could be connected to some of the ideas at its core, which is to say that, you know, I wanted to find a way of expressing through the structure of the book the way that recovery had felt like an opening outward and a kind of listening or kind of careful attention to the stories of other people. And I couldn't enact that with the form of the book if it was just my story. Um, so I wanted to say, is there a, is there a way that, this, that I can kind of become smaller across the course of this book? Not that, that's, not that there's anything intrinsically wrong or intrinsically self-absorbed about memoir. There are people who think that, but I'm not one of them. Um, but that I, I wanted to play with the structure of this book to say, okay, you sort of start in my voice and in my life, and then all of these other voices come onto the scene. There's a quote that shows up partway through the book that the writer Charles Jackson encountered in his own recovery uh, from the writer G.K. Chesterton um, that said, um, uh, what if, I'm going to bastardize it, hopefully just a little bit. Um, what if uh, what if you could become smaller inside your own life as if you were on a street full of splendid strangers? And that idea of a street full of splendid strangers was part of what I wanted to write in the book. Um, so I think that was the, that idea of creating a chorus was a way of formally expressing part of the kind of psychological mechanism of recovery itself. But then it ended up having all these side benefits like... Uh, for example, I think when you tell a single addiction story, even if you don't mean to, you end up saying, like, this is how it goes, or this is how it should go, or it kind of gets held up as representative, when really it goes a thousand different ways, and having 20 different stories in this book was a way of illustrating organically at least 20 of those ways, rather than sort of suggesting, like, this is what recovery should look like, or it always ends in a self-destructive spiral. I sort of liked that there wasn't just going to be one ending to the book, there were going to be, like, 20 endings to the book. Yeah, and I could go on asking questions uh, till the uh, end of the night and, and beyond, because how you wove all of those various things together is incomprehensible to me, but but I did want to open up and make sure other people have a chance. So thank you for, for answering my questions. Um, but uh, please, for other people, we have a mic over there that can be brought to you if you have any. Someone's got to break the silence. Thanks. I don't know if I need a mic, but um, you used the term, um, I think both of you may have used the term, contingency management. Could you just explain what that means? Um, sure. So contingency management has actually been shown to be very uh, a very uh, successful way of helping people overcome their addictions, which is 
basically where you, the easiest example is where you pay people for clean urines, for instance, uh, people who use drugs. You, you give them positive rewards for continued abstinence, and the rewards get bigger often as the you know, time goes on. Um, and essentially, you just, you know, you can think of it as this reward system as Leslie describes, and when she first stopped, you know, that reward system, nothing was going to touch the level of reward that she was had been getting, and now you have to substitute something, some other kind of reward, and money's a pretty easy one, but please. Well, yeah, and I think part of, part of what I, you know, when I first heard that phrase, contingency management, it didn't, it felt foreign to me, um, but... Part of what was fascinating was seeing the ways in which I had actually been experiencing many versions of contingency management in recovery without realizing that's what it was. I never got paid to not get drunk, but even just showing up in a, you know, showing up in a room and feeling like somebody else is happy to see you, like that's a reward. Or, you know, standing up in front of a room and getting a 30-day chip, like that's a reward. Um, and so that sensor, or, you know, sharing something and seeing somebody else across the room like nod and you can see that it hit them like that's a reward you know so I think just the way that these like sort of subtle moments could become part of this kind of clinical framework and it also gave a language the way that I think part of what was important to me about recovery was that it meant that sobriety didn't just involve subtracting something like taking the drinking away it involves like um Experiencing something that I hadn't been able to experience before. There was a kind of there was an addition rather than just a subtraction. Yeah, and I have to say this is where you and you know AA far uh, appreciates things much better than researchers and often clinicians, which is we tend to be much more punishment sensitive. You know, you know, CYA kind of practice and make sure you don't get sued. So we've come up with all sorts of ways of removing the reward or punish punishing the use. But notice there are no treatments except for contingency management that actually provide a reward, mm -hmm. except for AA. That's the only thing. Um, sort of some group, uh, as you say, contingency management through that positive connection. That, that's important. Well, and something else just building directly off of that, and because I, I always, especially in conversations that feel a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit less focused on this as text and a little bit more focused on this content, I always feel like it's important to say that this book is is an exploration, among other things, of like the role that narrative and storytelling play in, in AA and fellowship-based recovery, um, but it's very much not uh, like a proselytizing text saying like that's the only way to get sober, and part of it, because it, it um, you know, there are many people for whom it's incredible, many people for whom it doesn't work at all, um, some people for whom it works for a time and not, but part of what talking to you help me understand is that it's like, you know, you don't have to say it's everything. You don't have to say it's the devil. It's like, it, it's one way of providing something really important, which is community. And I would also say ritual. When you talk about conversion, I was thinking about how, you know, I don't really buy into a, a kind of moral theory of addiction. But I do think there's something really important about how ritual can allow you to become a different version of yourself. And there is something, um, there are really powerful forms of ritual at play in recovery. So I think for me it's helpful to think about fellowship-based recovery or AA or 12-step programs as like one way to get this really important thing, which is community, but they're not the only way, of course, that you can get community. And you said at one point like, you know, um, like everybody needs a su support system and that feels like a really honest way of saying it's 
it's not that there's one way to do this. It's just that there's something really important about feeling like you're in it with others. Absolutely. Uh, yes, I had a question. Like everybody needs a, a belief system and support with it. But um, from my experience and from what I've read, you know, like, um, and I want your insight on this, like, um, with all the books in the world and the research and the help and the recovery programs, you know, very few people stay clean. I mean, it's like, um, it's such a low percentage of people that actually get some time and keep that time. Um, could you give me some, give us some insight into the reason why? Yeah, well, I uh, hope maybe hopefully both of us can speak to that. I mean, first of all, it's, it's such an important thing to say and such an important question and such an important thing to acknowledge um, that it's, it's, it's really, really hard to get sober when you're addicted and that there are, you know, for every story of recovery, there are, um, there are a lot of stories where it doesn't work out that way. And, you know, what insight can I offer on that? Probably not any more than, than you could. Um, but I guess when I, when I think about that, it's certainly part of what I was trying to do in this book and why I wanted to tell stories of people who, um, who never got sober or uh, got sober and then relapsed, or you know, there um, some of the people that I was writing about um, committed suicide. Like, and I didn't include those stories to suggest some sense of futility or despair, but just to acknowledge, like, it's not all happy endings, and even the happy endings, we we can't know what's going to happen next. Um, so, I think the first important part is just to acknowledge that, as you even did with your question, and then it's like to 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 not let that acknowledgement make us feel like it's all futile, um, but to hopefully just inspire the kind of, you know, what Adam was talking about earlier, like the telling of stories to make more space for public conversation about this, trying to reinvent our policy structures to be more supportive of possible recoveries rather than what we've been doing for the last century um, to kind of say like look it's really tough we need to marshal all of our resources like kind of personally and collectively to come at this like nearly impossible task so you know that speaks volumes I, I think from a clinician standpoint um, and I'm not sure that uh, I would say this is universal but from my standpoint what I tell people is look I hope you never use again once people get clean because we actually in one year, you're right, only 30 to 40 percent of people are clean one year out from having gotten clean initially. And what I say is I hope you never use again, but um, I'm not perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect. And actually, I have found, even though the reward is usually the longer you go, the more valuable your, you know, your chip that you get through AA, but I find it's, it's that... You go as long as you can, and then something sidelines it. Like at your birthday, you think you can celebrate it. Maybe I can just have that one beer, and then you're off to the races. So I try to prepare people at the time and say, look, something may sideline you. The trick is to get back into treatment as early as possible and to not beat yourself up endlessly and lose all that time. Um, and I think having um, support out there to, so that you can still have a lifeline on the way back, you know, someone... Uh, to, you know, Leslie's here in print, but, uh, you know, you talked about the person you had who was your support. So I try to get people to understand that it's, 
yes, there are relapses, but it's not about who has you know no relapses as it is about who in the end is spending the most time clean. And it's okay if you relapse as long as you get back into treatment and don't end up dead. So that's an important part for me. Um, I don't want to take us off of the recovery piece too much, but I think there's a connection here. The first piece I read of yours was Devil's Bait, and um, I'll let you explain what that piece is about. But it occurs to me, listening to you talk about recovery and reading your book and so forth, that there's some odd connections between mysterious disease and mysterious disease. And I wonder where you were in your recovery when you researched and wrote um, Devil's Bait, and if, if there was any kind of connection for you. Yeah, um, it's a like, uh, question that is like peering right into my soul. And there are <laughs> connections. And yeah, so Devil's Bait is an essay about a condition. I would love to hear your take on it. I'm sure you have one. But um, a condition called Morgellons disease that is a controversial skin condition that most doctors believe is psychosomatic. Um, in which patients who identify as suffering from Morgellons will report, like, uh, uh, lesions, rashes, the feeling of, um, like, bugs crawling under the skin, but the most distinct symptom they report is, like, unexplained threads and fibers emerging from the inside of their bodies. And, you know... Uh, but like, not botflies. Definitely not, not botflies. Not botflies. Yeah, <laughs> another story. Um, uh, and I got interested in Morgellons not because I thought I would crack the case to figure out whether it was real real or not but because I was sort of interested in it seemed clear that people who identified as suffering from Morgellons were experiencing some serious kind of pain and I was curious both what it was that they were experiencing even if it wasn't uh, an actual set of physical symptoms and also what they got out of being part of a community because there's like a, a very um robust community that has formed of, of Morgellons self-identified Morgellons patients and they kind of congregate on the internet they congregate in person once a year and so I wanted to know like what happens and, and what do they what draws them to this form of coming together so uh, that's one way into your question which is to say yes I was um, in recovery when I when I started working on that piece and I think it was partially my experience of feeling the kind of force of what it meant to be in a community where people would literally sit in a circle and share their stories that made me feel like even even if I couldn't identify with Morgellons patients insofar as I, I didn't have the feeling of unexplained fibers or threads coming out of my body, but I did, I did connect to something about what it felt like to sit in a room and feel like somebody really heard what you were saying and had experienced it too. So I think that my interest in community was um, very much, had a lot of its most powerful origins in uh, the experience of recovery. And that was part of what drew me to that story. Um, and I also think trying to examine what kinds of pain uh, summon sympathy and what sorts of pain summon judgment um, was also something I was thinking about a lot in addiction and recovery and, and thinking about in a different way in this book when, especially in some of the kind of cultural history where I'm trying to think through why do some addictions get narrated as something, uh, a kind of pain towards which we should be sympathetic, whereas other addictions, say um, people who were experienced to crack cocaine in the 1980s, um, 
you know, those addicts get narrated as villains and, and put in prison. So what sorts of pain um, make you somebody who deserves sympathy and what sorts of pain make you somebody who deserves judgment, um, I think is a question that carried me into the train of Morgellons and carried me in a different way into the train of addiction. I can just tell you very briefly that um, certainly half the time when people are diagnosed as having a somatoform disorder, a disorder um, that takes the form of the body but is really due to distress in the brain, uh, in the mind, half the time it's actually something the doctors just overlooked. But even if it is correct, that it, like ha- Like in that half the time, it's something physical the doctors Yeah, that's something yeah. That, that, that will come out either that they miss it at the time or down the road they will make the correct diagnosis because it will become more obvious. But, um, but the reason why it sounded so familiar to you is somatoform disorders are true suffering. People are suffering without any question, but it's a behavior disorder. But just like anorexia, which has the highest mortality rate, uh, is an addiction to being mm-hmm. to starvation. So it, you know, all of these are kind of in the same ilk. But what doctors don't understand all too often is that the person is truly suffering and they are undergoing immense pain, not from the etiology that they think it is, but it is a known condition that has a known treatment. And too often doctors say they're faking it, or they just, and that's not true. The pain's real. Um, so I was also thinking of a previous essay that you wrote, um, I think it was in The Guardian, about confessional literature. And I was thinking about how you talked about how after your first book came out, people would reach out to you to share problems in their family or illnesses or things that they, they just saw your empathy in your confession. And obviously being in a situation like AA, you were in a very different place of confession, not just you know, kind of distance through uh, literature, but in looking people in the face and also hearing them, not distance, but right in the face. So I'm wondering if that, how that influenced you know, how you approach confession and vulnerability or hearing other people's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, it's a, yeah, it's a great question. I think, I guess one way of putting it is that my that I have a deep and genuine belief in the ways in which sharing personal experience can be um, not a solipsistic gesture. I mean, there are also ways in which it clearly can be, but can be a gesture that really forms and builds community, and that I think that that logic operates on the level of, of literature and how sort of people take their own experiences and you know, often like refract and um, distill and reshape those experiences into fiction. Not that that's the only place fiction comes from, but it's one of the powerful sources of fiction. Or they shape and distill those experiences into nonfiction, but that that can be part of creating this kind of community or create creating connections and that, that those connections happen between the writer and their readers, some of whom, many of whom they might never meet. Um, and that there's a, a different but related logic of kind of connection that happens in recovery meetings. So there was a way that when I entered recovery, I felt like I was seeing another version of a process that I had already been deeply committed to and deeply inspired by, but I was seeing it work in a very different way. Um, And that's part of what this book was interested in exploring, right, is that, you know, recovery was also a space where people would share stories and feel bound together in the sharing of those stories, but the kinds of values that got attached to those stories were often really different. So 
you know, in, in literature, for example, there was always such a high premium placed on a story being original or unlike any a story that had ever been told. And part of what moved me about recovery was the way that originality wasn't just not the point. It was sort of like the opposite of the point. Like the, the unoriginality of a story was what made it useful. So I loved seeing that this sort of logic of vulnerability and sharing kind of united these two worlds that... Um, I was a part of and felt grateful to, but that the the ways in which storytelling worked were also quite quite different. So it was that sense of sort of connection and divergence that I think was part of what opened this book up. So Leslie's going to stay for signing, but I think we have time for one more question. I, I was going to ask you both. Oh, I think it's off. It's. Uh, I was going to ask you both. Oh, you, oh, there it is. <laughs> whether you could say a word about heroin. Um, you know, back in the day. Hospital wards were full of drunks, and and um, we sort of knew how to take care of those people. Um, these days, heroin has sort of blown alcohol away, and the darkness and the horror of the epide- of the heroin epidemic has has utterly wiped away. Uh, recollections of what alcoholism is like, and, and that's not to, you know, say anything about AA and and, and alcoholism, but I'm fascinated by what makes her- heroin so much worse and darker. You go first. I go first. Okay, great. Um, so the question is about heroin. So. What's actually really um, sad is that where uh, the current epidemic of heroin comes from is a well-meaning decision based on no evidence-based outcome by the Joint Commission, uh, which back back in uh, 2001 said that we had to make pain the fifth vital sign. And when pain became the fifth vital sign and everybody had to ask their patients about pain at the same time that, and you'll hear about some of these lawsuits going on uh, against Purdue because Purdue came out with OxyContin and OxyContin, we were all told, had no addicting properties to it whatsoever. So doctors started to prescribe it willy-nilly and there was no training as to how to manage the pain that patients had. So doctors got patients addicted and then once they got them addicted, they said, oh my God, well now you're addicted, I'm not prescribe anyway oxycontins and so people are finding it's one dollar per milligram so it's a hundred dollars to take a hundred milligram dose of oxy but it is fifteen dollars to get heroin right down the street so we have a lot of mothers in the community and fathers in the community who didn't ever see themselves as becoming heroin addicts who were becoming heroin addicts and the accidental deaths due to opiates went in 2000 from 4,000 to now we're up to 16,000 and climbing and this is really the joint commission open the Pandora's box. How to get the gene back in is a whole different discussion, but I mean, it, it involves using the kinds of things that uh, Leslie's writing about, but you're right, it's a, it's a huge problem. But that's what got it started. How we're going to put it right is another question. Yeah, I mean, I uh, right now I'm writing a forward to uh, an anthology of reported pieces about the opioid epidemic and the opioid crisis and have been struck by a few things, one of which is the like overwhelming kind of unbearable repetition of certain kinds of stories, like, uh, you know, babies crying in trailers while their parents are 
nodding off or have OD'd or, um, you know, parents desperately trying to text their adult children to figure out where they are. I mean, it's just, it's really kind of knowing it does feel like it's this uh, powerful confluence of the way in which synthetic opioids were kind of unleashed onto the American public um, with not enough understanding of, or just like false understanding of like whether oxys, you know, and release could be like easily overcome and it could. Um, but also that there's something kind of pretty primal about the desire to numb pain. I mean, I think it comes back to, which isn't to say that that psychological mechanism is the only thing behind the epidemic because clearly there are all of these like external forces around availability that are like the, the its engine, but that I, I think there's also this reality that like, you know, when I got buzzed and thought, why doesn't everybody seek this feeling all the time? I think there's also something really primal about like the ways in which it, 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 it feels good to have, to be able to make something that hurts go away, whether that's something physical or something emotional. Um, and so there's, a, there's just a primary driver there. But the last thing I'll say in terms of putting the genie back in the box is that, you know, kind of related to what I was saying earlier about recovery, uh, fellowship-based recovery not being the only way. It's like, I think it can be really dangerous to think that all recovery has to happen through sort of therapeutic means or community-based means because it seems clear with, with heroin and opioids that like medication-assisted treatment is in some cases like really the only thing that's going to allow those other sorts of recovery to take hold. So it, it, it seems important to keep kind of like vital to make those a part of the conversation in a way that maybe they're starting to become more of. I don't know what your take is on that evolution, but... Yeah, just one one of the comment that I want you to end with the story that you tell in the book, which is that just as you've said about chasing that first high, um, you know, now what we see is people get told, oh, there's fentanyl out there. And they're told fentanyl's the most amazing. Maybe they can get back to the first time they did it because now what they're doing is they're getting high in order to just stop the terrible withdrawal feeling. So the pain that they have is a withdrawal. So they go off in search of the fentanyl, and that's why they're dying, because fentanyl is such a teeny little margin. But yeah. you tell the story about the um, the you know the, the rats and the much bigger habit trail that oh, they're in. Yeah. Yeah. Would you just tell that? Because I think that has some information that we can think about. Yeah. Just to end with Well, yeah, and then just one quick thing on that. Yeah, I remember somebody talking about how, you know... Um, if they show a, like a newscast on TV about, you know, like a, a batch of heroin that was so strong that a lot of people were dying from overdoses or, you know, I think this is connected to fentanyl as like a, a more dangerous but more powerful high. It's like when, it, when somebody who's addicted sees that newscast about the heroin that's so strong that a bunch of people died, they think, oh, where can I get it, you know, because like, the, way that, the way that heightened tolerance works is that you need to, like, go up to the gates of death in order to feel something stronger than just maintaining your level, you know, so it's, like, really courting that danger zone. Um, yeah, the, the study that I was uh, referencing it, which, you know, is, um, uh, is a study called Rock Park, where, there, you know, there was a, a famous, like, public service announcement style commercial in the 80s uh, called Cocaine Rat that, you know, famously showed this rat in a kind of bear cage just pushing this lever over and over again to get more um, cocaine that was kind of coming into a receptacle that had been surgically embedded in its back and it it kept pressing for cocaine until it died. Um, 
but that vision of like it being sort of this like innate thing that you would just want more and more cocaine or that a living creature would just want more and more of the thing um, was pushed back against by this study called Rat Park where rats weren't kept in like a barren cage with no company and nothing to entertain them but were instead kept in Rat Park which was like a cage that had toys to play with, had other rats to hang out with and have sex with and you know I mean there was like a lot to do in Rat Park and the idea was like we can't just think about addiction as some sort of thing happening inside the body about craving. It also has everything to do with the world you're inhabiting and what the possibilities for expansion, pleasure, vitality, community are in that world. So I think right now we're in a big bind because the current government is not really geared towards rat park. It's really geared towards, you know, um, trying to rat prevent jail. rat jail and uh, prevent people from coming into the country and the like. But it's a rat. It is a rat. Yeah, so um, but I think that the the point is that there it takes many different approaches. Um, and I think that taking care of people um, which is a lot of what you did and, and you're doing here when you know, describing these things and helping people to understand better that this is not a, you know, a, a blight against someone's character. In fact, you can be brilliant and incredibly uh, you know, giving of your time to help all the people at Columbia that you do and to come here tonight. Well, thank you so much, Leslie and Adam, for your insightful conversation and thank you all for spending your evening with us. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.